So I think, good afternoon. We'll start the afternoon session now. We have uh, three uh, wonderful speakers and topics, I think, of great interest. Um, management of long-term complications of HIV disease, something that we increasingly, of course, are doing. Um, investigation on new drugs and um, information really about opioids and HIV infection, um, which I think you'll all find very, very useful and certainly very important and part of our daily management to many of our patients. Um, so the first speaker of the afternoon is um, Dr. Judith Currier. She is um, a longtime colleague and friend. Um, is professor of medicine at UCLA and um, director of um, the HIV program and um, clinical trials uh, program and Center for Clinical AIDS Prevention and Research and Education. So, Judy. Thank you very much. Okay, Friday afternoon, beautiful sunny day. Everybody's just been outside. This is going to be a challenge, but I'd like to, uh, first of all, thank you all for coming back. Um, and uh, for, so that's good. I noticed the big bevy of fellows that was in the middle seems to be missing. And I guess I don't blame them. It is Friday. And I think the weather here in New York is nicer than LA. So maybe I'll stick around. All right, so my disclosures and some learning objectives, I'm jumping right in. So um, I think we're all aware that as our, our patients are doing so much better on HIV therapy, we're now faced with a range of other health uh, issues to manage uh, in the clinic. And it does appear that a number of non-communicable diseases, such as cardiovascular disease, non-AIDS, cancers, bone disease, diabetes, frailty, liver disease, lung disease, renal disease, and cognitive disorders occur at a higher frequency in, in people with treated HIV. And I think that our focus has been on how can we best uh, both prevent and, and treat those conditions, and also whether there are any similarities in the factors that are underlying and predisposing um, these problems. So I'll talk a little bit about that today. These are data from the Netherlands showing that um, the survival with treated HIV infection is continuing to improve. And looking at the um, bottom line from 1996 to 99, this is the survival in people over the age of 50 um, compared to the population controls. And at each successive time period, this curve is creeping up closer to a normal survival uh, in the population, but there's still uh, a bit of a gap. And even if you look at a subset of people who are treated, um, have no comorbidities prior to treatment, remain virally suppressed, they still have a little bit of a reduced survival compared to the population. So this gap is what I think we're trying to close. Uh, there are other analyses that suggest in, in potentially other settings and excluding subsets of, of um, some patients that we're getting very close. Um, but at the same, so, so what I'm going to talk about today is a little bit of the epidemiology of these non-AIDS events. I'll talk a little bit about pathogenesis and then some of the interventions really focusing mostly on cardiovascular disease. So the other big issue is that the population of people living with HIV is aging. 
uh, and that's a good thing. But it, when you look at what it's going to be like in the future, we're going to have a lot of people who are older with HIV. And I think the one thing we don't yet know is whether that this will lead to a further increase in some of these long-term comorbidities with longer years of life. Um, so these are data from the Netherlands looking at the percentage of people projected to be living with HIV over the age of 50. Currently, it's 28%. And then moving to 2030, whoops, it's 20, it's, um, oh, that was good, uh, 73%. Looking at the percentage of, of people who are expected to have one or more non-communicable diseases, 29% currently, and then estimated to be 84% in, in, um, in 2030. And over half of those people will be on medications to treat these non-communicable diseases. So we have issues of polypharmacy in addition to just de determining the optimal management for some of these conditions. So one particular condition that I've been interested in is cardiovascular disease and HIV. And this is data um, from the US looking at the proportionate circulatory mortality in subgroups of HIV-infected uh, men and women women over here on the left and men on the right. And you can see from the period of 1999 through 2013, this sort of upward trend now accounts for about 3.8% of um, mortality and in men 4.9%, but is increasing um, in all age groups. And this is at a time when trends in mortality due to cardiovascular disease in the general population and among people with other inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis appear to be on the decline. Um, and it makes sense if you are not dying from HIV that you're going to die of other things that are common in the population, but it suggests that the rate at which that's happening may be higher than what would be expected. Now, it's not true in all settings. Um, these data from Kaiser, where they've been tracking the relative risk of MI in their um, patient database, starting back in 1999, the number, the incident rate of MI in HIV positive compared to HIV negative um, was almost um, increased twofold. But as you go down in the subsequent time periods, this ratio is getting closer to one. And actually, in the most recent time period, there was no significant increase in the um, rate of MI in Kaiser enrollees who had HIV. So these are people who have access to treatment, virally suppressed, and I think managed with preventative health care. So that suggests that we can potentially reduce this gap. In addition to <clears throat> myocardial infarction, another emerging uh, complication is heart failure in HIV. Um, their studies using MRI have identified a high burden of myocardial fibrosis and also cardiac steatosis, so deposition of fat in the cardiac muscle. Um, studies looking at echo in, a in asymptomatic patients suggesting decreased systolic function and then also pericardial fat accumulation in um, some patients who have fat accumulation in the abdomen. There was one really large study of over 27,000 uh, patients with HIV compared to HIV negative who had no known clinical cardiovascular disease, and they found an increased risk of heart failure, both heart failure with preserved ejection fraction as well as heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, HEP-PEP and HEP-REP. 
Um, and these are subclinical um, findings in the most case. And what we don't know is what will happen in the future uh, to patients who have subclinical heart failure. Will we start to see more manifestations of that? So what contributes to these, the excess risk of these conditions? And this is a slide I've been using for a long time, and it, it really it hasn't changed in terms of the way I think about these different buckets of, of factors. Um, the contributions of each of these, I think we're learning more and beginning to quantify, and that helps us target our interventions to things that will be most successful in reducing the rate. So talking about host factors, um, genetics, lifestyle, one, many years ago, a cardiologist at UCLA su suggested to me that maybe the some of the genetic factors that people who are exposed to HIV and become infected may be on the same pathway as things that increase your risk of heart disease, and that's why we're seeing higher risk of heart disease. I think that's a little bit of a stretch, but maybe. Um, the interactions between the virus and the immune system and clearly innate, immunity, innate immune activation, which we see in treated HIV, is an important factor. And then the third issue is antiretroviral therapy, which I think there are a few examples that we've already talked about a little bit today, but I think by and large there probably aren't major differences in the choice of art uh, and the uh, risk of MI, and I'll talk more about that. So some of these factors, so I mentioned measures that were linked to um, innate immune activation, and there are different biomarkers that measure, um, measure this that have been studied in large cohort studies and have been um, found to be associated, and some of them are listed here, soluble CD14 and soluble CD163. There's also, I think, a strong association with the lower CD4 nadir and the risk for these diseases, suggesting that people maybe have a, a higher area under the curve of time of having um, increased immune activation. There's probably a role for copathogens such as CMV, and this is something that we've kind of said and we put in the back of our, our minds because we haven't really wanted to go out and give gancyclovir to patients thinking that that would have any effect, but as newer, safer drugs are developed for CMV, there may be a role for, for interventions directed at that. And then the other factor are abnormalities of coagulation. So just to talk about these biomarkers, and I, I don't think they're quite ready for the clinic, but I think there have been some really important observations that may help us in the future identify the patients who are at highest risk who might benefit from different types of interventions. And to me, this is one of the most striking things, is that a single measure of IL-6 or D-dimer predicted serious non-AIDS events over a 10-year period. Um, these are looking at the difference in quartiles. The, on the left is IL-6, uh, and comparing the highest quartile to the lowest, and on the right is D-dimer. And you think about that, it's sort of like your destiny is set even before you start treatment in terms of whether you're going to have a, an increased risk or not. Um, there have been these same associations in cohort studies have been made between um, levels of innate immune activation and end organ disease for cardiovascular disease, for non-AIDS cancers, for osteoporosis, for type 2 diabetes, frailty, COPD, bacterial pneumonia, and cognitive function. So clearly this is contributing in a broad way to many different problems. Um, and I think that we 
if we could identify, there may be different pathways through which the innate immune activation leads to the different types of events, but there may be opportunities for kind of nipping this in the bud if we could um, find ways to safely decrease this. Um, so just another study that looked at whether there were differential effects of these biomarkers for specific events. This is um, from the SMART and INSIGHT trials, where they looked at the hazard ratio for each of these endpoints, comparing the fourth to the first quartile of the different biomarkers, high-sensitivity CRP in red, D-dimer in yellow, and IL-6 in blue. And the main point of this slide was to show that IL-6 in blue was really the strongest um, predictor for both non-AIDS um, non events and for cardiovascular disease compared to, um, to the other two markers. Um, just a point about CMV, latent, most high percentage, probably over 80% of people with HIV are co-infected with CMV, and it's lurking around in the background, and it could be responsible for some of the um, increased immunosenescence and um, increased uh, proliferation of CD8 cells that can be linked to these comorbidities. And the question is, if we could immunize people against CMV or if we could give an effective therapy, would that have any um, benefit? We really don't know yet, but this, I think, is an area that you'll see more investigation of in the future. So what about antiretroviral therapy? Well, there's no question that it's better to be on treatment and not to be on treatment. The toxicity of untreated HIV outweighs any excess risk that ART could have to cardiovascular disease. We've heard about the protease inhibitor, longer duration of some of the older protease inhibitors, and Joe told you about the more recent data on darunavir. Um, and then abacavir, we won't talk about more because we talked about that during the panel. The question is about other contemporary agents. Uh, what do we know? And just another trial that compared um, three different initial treatments, adazanavir, ritonavir, raltegravir, or darunavir, ritonavir, each combined with tenofovir and FTC, included a sub-study that investigated these issues a little bit more closely to see whether there were differences between these drugs in some of the biomarker changes and in subclinical um, atherosclerosis. So about 330 patients were followed for um, 144 weeks and had these measures done. So in terms of biomarkers, um, comparing adazanavir, raltegravir, and darunavir, and it was notable that um, initially, uh, for 24-week change and then 48-week change, or 96-week changes are shown here, with raltegravir in the green initial decline, uh, IL-6 that stayed down, um, adazanavir went down and started to come back up, and then um, darunavir also went down and started to come back up towards baseline. So what we don't know is with longer-term therapy, there may be a transient improvement in, these, uh, in this particular biomarker that's not sustained over time. Um, we also looked in the study at changes in carotid intima medial thickness. And the, here, the blue is adazanavir, the green is raltegravir, and the red is darunavir. And it shows that uh, the, at both the um, bifurcation and the common carotid artery, the rate of progression of atherosclerosis was slower in patients who were on adazanavir compared to raltegravir. Um, and this was actually a statistically significant difference 
um, that may be clinically significant. And it's interesting um, that it appeared to be associated with the small increases in bilirubin that we see on atazanavir. This bilirubin is an antioxidant and may have a protective effect in terms of cardiovascular disease. So this has been looked at now in some of the cohort studies, both in the scenics and in a VA study. And in, in both of these, there was some suggestion that the higher bilirubin levels in the scenics cohort um, were associated with a lower risk of the type 1 MIs that Dr. Sag was talking about, um, but also for, um, and then there was a higher risk for type 2 MIs. In the VA, uh, those who are on atazanavir had a lower risk for MI. So, so what is what you say? So who cares? Well, you know, atazanavir is not currently one of the preferred first-line agents, but I think for a patient with the high risk of cardiovascular disease for whom they're on atazanavir, it might be a reason that I wouldn't switch, uh, and it might be a reason that I would consider it if you're considering a protease inhibitor. Um, it's interesting that the subclinical progression lines up with the clinical events and that there is a potential hypothesis. So, um, what, so what can we do about this? I mean, I think that really the main focus needs to be on lifestyle intervention. And this is the most challenging thing to do in primary care. Um, it, some cohort data suggests that HIV and smoking may synergize to have a, more of a detrimental effect of smoking on the risk of um, non-communicable diseases, cardiovascular disease, and smoking. One study suggested more lives were lost due to smoking than to HIV, due to smoking-related diseases in people with a HIV than to AIDS-related diseases. And so this really is our future and I think needs to be a, a primary focus. Obviously, screening and treating for hypertension and diabetes and trying to um, in, intervene with diet and exercise interventions um, is also, I think, a major, major focus. What about earlier antiretroviral therapy? I think there's been a thought that if we just treat everybody early, we won't have to worry about any of these problems anymore. And data from the START trial, which looked at initiating treatment above CD4 count above 500, um, compared to waiting until the CD4 dropped below 350, clearly showed a benefit. But it's interesting in the early results of the first few years of the study what the benefits were. And there, the major reduction were in deaths due to cancer um, and infectious um, complications such as TB, and not due to cardiovascular disease. In fact, the rates of cardiovascular disease were, same, were the same in both arms of the study. Similarly, there was no difference in a measure of vascular function that was performed, neurocognitive performance, or um, COPD as measured by um, spirometry in this er with this early treatment. Now, you can argue the population was young, the follow-up period was short, uh, and it may just be that it will take more time to see it. But the other um, thing that you can argue about is that maybe there, that these diseases, some of these diseases are more linked to a lower CD4 nadir. In other words, the early treatment couldn't fix something that wasn't broken yet. So um, I think it does suggest that there may be benefits of earlier treatment in, in eliminating some of the CD4 nadir um, diseases. And this is a slide from an editorial for Peter Hunt and colleagues in JID last year, or, uh, where they looked at um, the benefits of ART depending on the CD4 nadir. So in the top panel, there are, these are rates of opportunistic infections. 
And in the SMART study, where therapy was interrupted among people with lower CD4 naders, you can see the huge, higher, hugely higher rate of OIs uh, at a low CD4 nader when treatment was interrupted versus continuous treatment. In the START study, where the CD4 nader was much higher, there still was a benefit, but the event rate was much, much lower. Similarly, even for cardiovascular disease, which we don't think of as being linked to immunodeficiency, the rate of cardiovascular disease among those who interrupted ART in the SMART study was significantly higher um, than it was in those who delayed treatment um, in the START study. So it may be that there really is something to this um, CD4 nadir and history of long-term immune activation that contributes to these. But nonetheless, there also is evidence of impaired vascular function and increased arterial inflammation, even among people with early HIV infection. So I don't think that this doesn't start to develop. I think it's a developing over a continuum. So I talked about some of the things that we can do um, in addition to changing antiretroviral therapy, which uh, other than some of the older PIs and potentially a Bacavir, there probably aren't major differences. Um, the other types of interventions that are being studied in clinical trials include the use of CCR5 antagonists and then also um, CCR2 antagonists, Senecrivirac, which is, inhibits both of those, is being investigated for potential cardiovascular benefits. Um, interleukin antagonists, methotrexate, which can lower IL-6, has been studied in low doses. And then I think the most um, closest to the clinic intervention is the use of statins. So IL-1 beta inhibition with a uh, monoclonal antibody called canicibumab, this is directed against IL-1 beta, and the drug is approved for use in other inflammatory diseases such as juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and familial Mediterranean fever. There's a study going on in HIV-negative adults with a history of cardiovascular disease. It's called the CANTOS trial. 17,000 people are receiving injections of this medication on, I think, a quarterly basis to test whether it will reduce inflammation and risk of subsequent cardiac event. Priscilla Shu and her colleagues at UCSF are doing a study uh, on this and reported at Croy on 10 patients uh, receiving kenicibumab and saw using FDG-PET a pretty striking reduction in arterial inflammation. Um, so we'll see more about the long-term safety and um, efficacy of this as a strategy for people at, um, at high risk. This, their study is being done in people at high risk for cardiovascular disease. Okay, so we have a question here about statins and your use of statins in your practice. So which statement best reflects your view? Um, you follow the AHA, ACC guidelines, you prescribe without regard to them, or you don't know what you should be doing? Let's see how many people are still here. Okay, I pushed it again. Pushed it again. Everyone's to zero. Oh, look at 
with that. Okay, what a uh, compliant group we have here. 78%. And I think at this current time, I mean, my take-home message is I think that's what we should be doing. Um, there have been a number of studies that suggest that these guidelines may underestimate the, um, the risk for, for cardiovascular events. This was a study it done in people with HIV who'd had a CT angiography that showed they had high-risk plaque. And um, among those who had um, coronary plaque with two or more high-risk features, um, depending on which guidelines we use, the 2013 are in the black, only 25% of those would have been recommended for statins. So that suggests that really may be underestimating um, who the patients that are at, at highest risk. Others have looked at the comparison of different risk calculators, um, including the Framingham uh, equation, the ACCHA score, and then an HIV-specific calculator called DAD that includes HIV RNA and I believe CD4 count in it. And in their study, the Framingham was the most accurate. Um, however, many with events were not identified. Um, these authors suggest that we need larger studies to look at this. Another larger study that just came out from the Scenics by Matt Feinstein looked at the performance of the AHA, ACC pooled risk calculator and then among subgroups of, of um, patients. And up in the left are white men. You can see it performed pretty well, the observed over expected. Um, and white women, very few events. But for black men and women, there are more events above the line um, than below the line, suggesting that may be under-predicting. Um, and statins have you know, a lot of potential benefits for people with HIV in addition to lowering LDL. They can also dampen this immune activation that I was talking about earlier. In a, a study called Saturn and that was done in HIV-positive patients, they saw reductions in the soluble CD14 levels and also in the macrophage-derived um, phospholipase, um, LPPLA2. And, so the, and this study also showed uh, improvement in uh, carotid IMT. So clearly, um, potential benefits. Safety of statins continues to be an issue for long-term use, and one of the things we worry about is glucose um, control and interactions with PIs. Uh, recent data um, from some of the newer statins are resuvastatin and pitavastatin, um, pitavastatin having no interactions with PIs and no effects on glucose. Um, suggesting that that might have a special role in, in people with HIV if, if, um, if it's covered. Um, and that this drug is being studied in the REPRIEVE trial. And how many of you have heard of the REPRIEVE trial? Okay. How, how many of you are at sites that are doing the REPRIEVE trial? Okay. And, and how many of you are trying to recruit more patients? <laughs> so this is a great study. For This is a really, I think, an area where we have equipoise. It's an unanswered question. We're going to learn a lot about the benefits of statins in reducing MI um, and also a host of other complications. The study's also looking at sex, di sex differences in risk of, of, of MI and um, a number of other um, components such as frailty. They're also looking at CT angiography. So I do encourage um, people to consider referring um, participants for this trial. It's going to have 6,500 patients. It's almost half enrolled. There's 100 sites globally. 
Um, and I, I think that it will um, provide a really important answer to whether we should be changing our guidelines and using statins more liberally, because that would certainly be an, an easier thing to do than some of the other potentially more toxic interventions that I've um, discussed. So to summarize, I think non-AIDS events are, are here to stay. They're a growing cause of morbid morbidity and mortality probably linked to this innate immune activation that occurs even in the setting of treated disease. And I think that early treatment will help, but if you think about it, you know, half the people in the world with HIV still haven't been treated. The average CD4 count at which treatment's been started still well below 500. So we are gonna have, for decades to come, a large population of people who remain at risk for these non-communicable diseases, and we need strategies to improve them. Um, traditional risk factors, though, remain really important, and uh, finding ways to improve s smoking cessation and, and help people to recognize that this is their biggest risk for mortality in the short term are smoking-related complications. Um, we may have some novel interventions to reduce inflammation long-term, and we may have more to learn still about the optimal heart regimen, um, but I think that you know, it, it is still a better place to be, to be talking about to, with people about how to stay healthy into their 80s and 90s uh, than the kinds of conversations we had decades ago. So thank you. A minute to spare. A minute to spare, okay. Well, let me start off with a question. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to raise the issue of neurologic disease in the aging population and trying to distinguish, first of all, is there an increased risk and, um, and distinguishing between HIV-related and the common decline in older age that all of us will be experiencing? Yeah. No, that's a great question. I, I think it's a great topic um, for a, a talk um, at a session like this. I mean, there, there probably are some aspects of in more advanced stages that you can't tell the difference. There may be some subtle differences early on in the um, HIV-associated neurologic um, conditions with just sort of psychomotor retardation and, and slowing, but the cognitive impairment may be indistinguishable. And I don't know, you know, they're getting so many um, really advanced imaging techniques now that are being used that might be able to, to shed some light on it. But I, I think it's going to get harder uh, to tell the difference from a just clinical standpoint. you have a good one? Uh, okay, so this is a question. Um, there was a discussion about um, telmosartan as an anti-inflammatory in HIV like aspirin and, and statins. So telmosartan is a, um, an angiotensin receptor blocker. It may have um, benefits in reducing um, both inflammation, um, potentially IL-6, and maybe fibrosis. And one of the a study that just completed um, follow-up and is being analyzed now is looking at evidence of lymph node fibrosis and fat fibrosis, as well as a host of biomarkers with telmosartan. Um, full results will be out, um, and but preliminarily, um, the, made the effects on at least lymph node fibrosis by pathology uh, were not significantly um, improved over a 48-week period, but more to come with uh, telmosartan and the, and the biomarkers. Uh, Judy, can you speak to the lack of increased, 
I think this is cardiovascular risk of diabetes in people living with HIV. See the DAD data. How much smoking, HIV, increased cholesterol, all with still risks. I, I, I don't know if the question is the, so there does appear uh, from data from the MAX cohort to be an increased risk of diabetes in people with HIV, particularly been demonstrated in men. Um, but in the DAD study, I'm not sure if the person's referring to whether it was a, associated with the risk of MI or not. Um, not sure I understand the question. Okay. Can't help. But I can try to. Yeah, it wasn't, so, yeah, I don't know if it was if, um, you know, how, like, after they controlled for smoking, it was no longer an independent risk factor. It may have been that the, the, um, the way that they diagnosed diabetes, if it was based on a diagnosis code, maybe undercaptured some diabetes that, based on laboratory testing, and it may have also been that the prevalence of diabetes was just low, so it didn't um, rise to that association, but it's, a, it's an interesting observation. Another area of um, sort of vague, not well-defined, but I think real area of um, related or associated but not necessarily um, communicable disease is rheumatologic complications of HIV, um, in addition to frailty, but inflammatory processes. Um, aches and pains, joint issues, um, immobility, et cetera, and anything on that? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, I haven't seen any studies that carefully looked at rates of inflammatory arthropathies. Clearly, in my own practice, I've seen them, and they can be very difficult to manage, especially when they need to use steroids. I actually have a, a patient who's on methotrexate for, his, uh, for that, that condition and appears to be tolerating it well. Um, other, you know, more not inflammatory, but just myalgia and, and other um, types of uh, musculoskeletal complaints, um, I really haven't seen good data. The only thing that, that people are really starting to study carefully is frailty, um, which, is, which is a well-defined syndrome and has some components that are related to mobility. And that does appear to be increased, uh, there, it does appear to be an increased risk in people with HIV as they get older. And then one question was whether the DAD had analyzed mortality, CVD risk according to statin use or non-statin use. And I haven't seen a statin analysis from DAD, but I'm sure they're considering it. Um, I, the other point I think that Joe made this morning is that um, use of statins uh, by people with HIV is really underused compared to what might be expected based on risk. And then also another modeling study that was done by the group in the Netherlands suggesting that if we um, get people to quit smoking and manage lipids, that will have a, it will have a major impact, on, at least on the predicted rates of some of these events. So there definitely are, there's a huge target around modifiable risk factors that I think um, we can all continue to try to work on. So is there any insight or any issue that can, um, we can glean from actually children and non-communicable diseases? We tend to think of these as older people's diseases, but children age more rapidly on HIV. Is there anything yeah. of interest yeah. there? That's a, it's a great point, and I think trying to study what <clears throat> will happen to children as they age with HIV, is it's a much 
almost pure um, environment because you don't have quite so many of the other environmental and um, behavioral factors involved. Grace McComsey um, and uh, Allison Ross have published a few studies looking at both development of carotid intimomedial thickness in children uh, with HIV, uh, as well as looking at um, rates of bone disease. And these things are being seen in kids. It's a little bit hard. Some of these are harder to study, getting um, approval to do things like DEXA scans and, and CTs on younger um, participants has been challenging. But it does suggest that, that we are going to see, and really the interventions there need to be aggressive if they're going to live a long time that may be things that can be done early on. Another feature of HIV disease is um, particularly among many of the challenging patients that we have is actually stress and the effect of stress on the immune system and also non-communicable diseases. And is that factored into these cardiovascular risk factors or other things where they actually could very well have an effect? Um, probably not as much as they should be. I mean, I remember a study for early on in the MAX cohort that they did a study of looking at levels of stress in men at risk for HIV disease and actually showed higher rates of HIV acquisition, almost like the higher rates of stress and the um, adrenergic stimuli made more targets for HIV in, in those people. So I think it definitely is a is another target for, for intervention and, you know, studies that have looked at techniques such as mindfulness and other mm -hmm. things to reduce stress. I do think they have a, um, a place in our armamentarium for preventive health care. Okay. Well, thank you. Any other questions? Okay. Thank you. Good.